0: The young pilots plain tales. Great Uncle Baz. In the United States, the very country that proudly claimed to be the birthplace of powered flight, early aviation had not progressed quite as fast as might have been expected. Aircraft manufacturers in Europe boosted by the need to develop credible air forces for the approaching war, had stolen a march on American aviators. Not to say that those like the Wright brothers and Glenn Curtis weren't prospering, but even for them, the European enthusiasm for aircraft and flying schools offered more opportunities. In those early days, the challenges that aviators took on were really about breaking records of speed and height, often to win prizes. Pilots participated in county fairs or even just out on farmers' fields performing risky manoeuvres for both the thrill of the danger, the adulation of the crowds and, of course, for money. The crowds attended such events not just for the spectacle but undoubtedly for the thrill of a possible crash, of which there were plenty. Performing aerobatics in those early, fragile flying machines was risky in the extreme. The newspapers stirred a frenzy of public interest into a wildfire and then fanned the flames by offering enormous sums of money to competing pilots. Braith Rogers attempted to win and offered $50,000 by flying across the entire country in 30 days. Accidents, bad weather and navigation difficulties ensured that the prize would remain unclaimed by Rogers, but he did complete the journey, only to die in an accident at Long Beach during a demonstration when he was hit by a flock of seagulls. As the presence of an aeroplane became more mundane, increasingly dangerous stunts were required to bring the big crowd. Wing walking became popular, which graduated to handstands on the wing, hanging off them and then jumping between two aircraft. Groups of aviators became flying circuses, within which they took enormous risks, but the rewards of perhaps $1,500 a day overcame any reluctance. Lincoln Beachy was one such performer who became famous for his stunts such as flying at 20 feet over the Niagara Falls under the Honeymoon Bridge. Even President Wilson became involved when Beachy buzzed the White House before flying past the Washington Monument upside down. He eventually crashed, performing at an international exposition in San Francisco when the wings of his machine fell off, sending the daredevil plunging to his death. In Europe, military aviation was already well developed when the war broke out and the urgency to develop this new aspect of warfare ensured that it evolved at a fast pace. No such drive existed in the United States as there was a strong desire to remain neutral. When the war started, the 1st Aero Squadron of the U.S. Signal Corps had only six Curtis-Jenny aircraft, twelve officers and 224 enlisted men, and it was woefully unprepared for the kind of mechanised war that was being fought in France with its barbed-wire tanks, trenches and artillery. The Germans had embarked on total war, with their submarines torpedoing neutral American merchant ships, their zeppelins bombing centres of population in England and using poison gas against troops and civilians alike in Belgium. The belligerents were making good use of their aircraft and technology with advances such as synchronised machine guns firing through the propeller arc. Quality cameras capable of oblique panoramas. Artillery spotting had developed into a fine art, as had reconnaissance and harassing the enemy with aerial bombardment and strafing. The aircraft that conducted such missions were often vulnerable, but they were now escorted by nimble and well-armed scout aircraft that could protect them from enemy attack. In addition, the observers who performed the practical duties required during such missions could protect themselves with rearward-firing machine guns. It was into this world that the story of listener Sam Dawson's great-uncle comes – Baz Bagby, had been a professional baseball catcher in the minor leagues before he enrolled into MIT, graduating as a mechanical engineer, before he responded to the call to arms as America joined the war. The World War had started three years earlier, and the United States had remained largely neutral, but eventually German atrocities in Belgium, the sinking of the passenger liner RMS Lusitania... And a year-long campaign by President Woodrow Wilson were enough to sway public opinion. In particular, when British intelligence made public a secret offer by the German Empire to help Mexico regain territory lost during the Mexican-American War, the people of the United States finally saw a need to join the Allied forces embattled in, in France. Baz's application to the Officer Candidate School in Artillery was successful, but after completing his training and emerging as a second lieutenant, he became keen to transfer from artillery to flying, telling his family he believed the Air Corps was destined to be the largest factor in winning the war. He was repeatedly turned down for pilot training, mainly as there was a greater need for observers, and after a few months' wait, he was shipped out, arriving in France in early March 1918. Little did he know, his war experience was only going to last nine months. He was well trained by a French unit and became the only American observer on his intake that was sent to a French escadrille, a small squadron. It was when in action he began to really understand the value of the work he was doing as an observer. During the next few months, he flew 111 missions in Spads and Bregez, usually over enemy territory, acting as the aircraft's gunner, bombardier, photographer and artillery liaison, often under the protection of fighter aircraft, so that his pilot could fly the steady routes he needed to carry out his mapping and reconnaissance duties. Whilst he yearned to become a pilot himself, Baz had realised that his work was essential to the commanders below, fighting in the trenches. It wasn't long before one of the primitive aircraft he was flying in suffered an engine failure after takeoff. Without much height, they were forced to land ahead in a wheat field, whereupon their spad turned turtle and he ended up hanging in his straps upside down, but unhurt. He and his pilot extracted themselves from the aircraft, whereupon his companion said, as he straightened his fine moustache, «C'est la guerre, Bagby. Donnez-moi une cigarette!» It wasn't until he was transferred to an American unit that Baz received his first commendation for his coolness and devotion to duty, when he brought down an enemy aircraft whilst fighting a formation of eight German machines. He found it odd that the observation duties he performed were deemed less important than the downing of a single aircraft, noting that photos of the Bosch back areas were more valuable and saved many lives, but there was no glory attached to it. I've gotten more credit for simply downing a Bosch than for all the rest of my work put together, he said. During his time with the 88th Air Squadron, Baz often flew with his friend, Lieutenant Bernie Bernheimer, and it was after overhearing a senior officer complaining that he couldn't get photos of the Meuse River bridges because of bad weather, that Baz and Bernie took it upon themselves to accomplish the flight. On the way back, they strafed an airfield, shot up some trucks, some artillery being moved, and a bunch of other vehicles. They were the only aircraft out in such bad weather and caught the sharp end of their commander's tongue. But the chief of Third Air Service remarked, Bernheimer and Bagby are at it again, are they? Good work. And they were both awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which Baz added to his wartime collection of awards, medals and commendations, which included the Croix de Guerre. After serving in France for nine months, the armistice was signed and Baz became a member of the occupying forces, playing baseball, flying around photographing the countryside and fulfilling his long-time ambition of learning to become a pilot. His logbook tells of wonderful solo flights over Paris and Luxembourg, winging his aircraft around the sky, and of the inevitable rough landings which seemed to be his stock in trade. The joy of flying had infected Baz, and he had decided to remain in the military so long as it was in the air service. Returning home from the war, Baz found America struggling with its difficulties, a few of which were prohibition, race riots, lynchings and the Great Migration, labour unrest and the fear of Bolshevism. But Baz wasn't the only returning war hero arguably the greatest, was Brigadier General Billy Mitchell. During the war, Mitchell had proved himself a master tactician and devoted supporter of air power, and on his return he was determined to advance its cause in any way possible. He had arguably done more to demonstrate the military potential of the aircraft than any other American, for which he would one day be recognised as the father of the United States Air Force but his work was clouded by uncertainty. With the signing of the armistice, the government had cancelled virtually all of its orders for new machines, forcing a number of manufacturers out of business. Enter the Great Transcontinental Air Race, officially named the First Transcontinental Reliability and Endurance Test. With Congressional Air Service budget hearings imminent, Mitchell planned the contest in hopes that such a widely publicised spectacle would boost interest in aviation throughout the United States. It became a headline-grabbing spectacle, in which military pilots would compete over a distance of 5,402 miles – competitors would start either in San Francisco on the west coast or Long Island in the east and had two complete flights that would take them via at least 20 nominated airfields to the opposite coast and back again. The aircraft competed for various prizes, shortest elapsed time, shortest total time, speed, endurance and handicap, but the press were only interested in one, the first to get there. Commanding officers nominated the participating aircrew, and Baz Bagby was one of the lucky ones, along with his friend, Lieutenant Colonel John Reynolds. As the aircraft started arriving at their departure points, the dangers of aviation, even in 1919, were being demonstrated. After departing Bingham for Long Island, one aircraft encountered heavy fog near Point Jervis, crashed and killed the pilot. Another died in an accident at deposit, but elsewhere two men survived crashing in flames and another pair were pulled alive from the waters of Lake Erie. It was destined to be a gruelling race, fraught with mechanical failures, bad weather, over 50 crashes and a total of nine deaths. Of the 62 entries, only eight would complete the race. The start was staggered, with the most senior officers somehow departing first, the last aircraft leaving hours later. Baz and John were number 26 to leave Roosevelt Field on Long Island, now a large shopping mall, which delayed them about three hours. But after all the razzmatazz, bands, aerobatic displays by General Mitchell and speeches, it was good to get on their way. The Assistant Secretary of War expressed a wish to fly, so a pilot and aircraft were found, but his flight only lasted a few seconds when Captain Cleary had a career-stopping engine failure, which ended up cartwheeling his machine into a ball of wreckage. Luckily, both emerged safe, if a little shaken. Flights for the competitors lasted a little more than an hour each and every staging airfield supposedly had fuel and would log their time on the ground, a minimum of 30 minutes. On day one, Baz made it as far as Buffalo, where they were held since it was getting a bit dark, but they used the time to make repairs that may have well prevented a forced landing later on. However, Maynard, the leader, had made it as far as Chicago. Other pilots hadn't been so lucky, and four of the eastern aircraft had already dropped out with a variety of problems, such as a fire and a DH-4 with an engine failure that crashed, killing the mechanic and injuring the pilot. There was a smaller send-off from Presidio Field in San Francisco, and there the intrepid pilots had to climb out of the fog to tackle the hazardous Sierra Nevada and Rockies. But with only 14 planes, their departure was achieved in only a quarter of an hour. What faced the Western pilots was a wall of mountains, but they were more used to the blinding snow, whereas those pilots from the East would struggle to get over them. Even so, Lieutenant Rice was forced to land his SE-5 in a farmer's field, wrecking his aircraft and chances of competing. Accidents continued to plague the competitors, with Sergeant McClure dying during a landing. It was common for the second occupant of a DH-4 machine to clamber out and sit on the rear fuselage during landing to prevent it from nosing over in the muddy conditions on most fields, a manoeuvre that often shook the fuel tank free, killing the pilot. McClure had unbuckled his harness, ready to climb out, when a bump threw him from his aircraft. Another co-pilot who did this was catapulted from the tail far into the air when the machine tipped over anyway. He was lucky to survive, but accidents resulting from this risky procedure were common. Crossing the vast continent with weather and terrain a major factor, there were more incidents that I could ever recount here, both to our hero, Baz, and the others who took but eventually the press named Belvin Maynard the winner when he was the first to arrive at his destination, San Francisco regardless that the others who departed Roosevelt Field after him might have completed the distance at a faster speed However, the city gave him a hearty welcome and a magnificent luncheon even though the race was actually only half completed The first to land at Roosevelt Field was declared to be Major Carl Spatz, despite the fact that a lower-ranking racer landed 20 seconds before him. Most competitors that made it across in either direction were exhausted, and many didn't attempt the return journey, but some brave selves were determined to, including Baz Bagby, who had arrived in San Francisco in ninth place. Those that did set off to complete the double-crossing were brave men, since they and their machines were very tired. The route was now pox-marked by wrecked aircraft, and as the death toll rose, the newspapers were criticising the inadequacy of the air service's equipment. Out of the field entrance only eight finished the round-trip, six from the east, including Baz Bagby, and two from the west. The first man to land in both directions was Belvin Maynard, but the shortest flight time was actually achieved by 2nd Lieutenant Alexander Pearson in a DH-4, with a total flight time of 48 hours and 14 minutes. There were few tangible rewards, but ten years after the race, as and others received a gold medallion honouring their participation. Had the race achieved its aim for Billy Mitchell's independent air force? Sadly not. And the old guard in the army and navy denied the argument, stating that an air force acting independently could of its own accord neither win a war at the present time nor so far as they could tell at any time in the future. But that, of course, is not the end of the story, and what happened next might well be the subject of another tale. With thanks to listener Sam Dawson and Betty Gorky, the author of the book about Baz Bagby, A Broken Propeller. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, and you can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales and would like it to continue as a standalone podcast, then how about leaving us a review on your podcaster of choice or preferably Apple Podcasts? Many thanks for listening.